Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 21. I'm going to pick up the narrative pace quite a bit here compared to the last couple of weeks where we camped in chapter 20 for a very long time. Acts 21. So the story is very complicated right at this point. To reorient ourselves, I would remind you We saw last week that Paul arrived in Jerusalem. He met with the elders of the Jerusalem church, and the elders told him, you have a massive credibility deficit here in Jerusalem. Put quite frankly, most of the church doesn't trust you, Paul. So we want you to prove yourself. Show them that you can be trusted. We have four men who have made a vow, go and pay their expenses, worship with them in the temple, and we'll take it from there. So Paul does exactly that. We left the story then at verse 26 of chapter 21. Paul took the men, the next day he went to the temple and started the process. Well, here's what happened. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed. And the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. Some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. And when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after crying out, away with him. And as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago raised an insurrection and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear my defense before you now. When they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our Father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. 
I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. As also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Since I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. Then it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray, to focus our minds, to orient ourselves in the story, to see the lesson understand Paul's main point to his people, which is that his gospel is not anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic in the slightest. Help us to see that, to know that. And Father, we pray for our Jewish friends, that you would open their eyes too, that they would be able to hear this speech and know the love and care that you have for, for them. Father, help us to pay attention to your word Help me to preach it boldly and accurately to your people. Give us all the grace to listen and change. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, we have a shift here. Paul's ministry as a free man ends in this narrative. Paul has been free to go wherever he wanted since Acts chapter 9 traveling here and there. He's been briefly arrested or driven out by mobs in various cities, but he's regained his freedom within a matter of hours usually. 
That all changes here in Acts 21 when Paul is taken into protective custody. The scene is set in the temple. In one corner of the temple, the temple had vast courtyards, some of them like 200 yards long or so. In one corner of the outermost one of these, on a tower stood a Roman fortress, the Antonia Fortress. This was positioned right in the middle of town, downtown Jerusalem, within the temple precincts. And there, this tribune, who's mentioned in the text, and his military cohort, probably around a thousand men or so, were stationed in order to keep order in the city. So in other words, things that happened in Jerusalem happened right in front. Well, things that happened in the temple happened right in front of the local police station. The soldiers were right there and able to come out at the slightest sign of disturbance. Of course, if we can believe Luke and the other first century authors whom we have, there were plenty of those for soldiers to respond to on a very regular basis here in the temple. So... Paul is in the temple. He's with the four Jewish men under a vow. He's trying to prove himself to the local church when suddenly he's spotted. He's spotted. A riot ensues almost immediately. The commander rushes down with a certain number of soldiers to take Paul into protective custody because he sees somebody being randomly beaten to death in the temple. He's not that surprised. But it's part of his job to deal with this kind of thing. So he runs out, grabs Paul, hurries him back into protective custody. And then Paul says, can I talk to these people? The tribune has got to be thinking, no, they want to kill you. Why would you bother talking to them? How about you just leave them alone and they'll leave you alone and we'll all have a nice evening. But the tribune says, fine, you can talk to the people. So that's the main thrust of of where we're at. Paul is taken into custody, protective custody, to keep the Jews from beating him to death. And in custody, he gets the chance to address the crowd and say, here's why you shouldn't beat me to death. I am not an enemy of this institution. I'm not an enemy of the temple. I'm not an enemy of my own people. I'm not an enemy of the Jews. And I am not an enemy of the law. So there's these three charges leveled against him that Paul is anti-Jewish, anti-law, anti-temple. And furthermore, that he's practically carried that out by bringing a Gentile into the temple and thus defiling it. So four charges against Paul. Paul stands up to speak to the crowd and say, these charges are baseless. I am not anti-Jewish. I am not anti-law. I am not anti-temple. And I would never bring a Gentile dog into the most sacred place of our shared faith. That's the point of the chapter. Paul says, I'm pro-Jewish. Not only am I still Jewish, I am still pro-Jewish. So, let's take a look at this. Paul is, well, he's in the temple. The seven days are almost ended. He is almost finished proving himself to the local Jerusalem church. And these Asian Jews, probably from Ephesus, but certainly from the province of which Ephesus was the capital, spot him. 
There's the one we can't stand. There's the one we know from his ministry in Ephesus. And there's the one whose guts we hate. And it only with them it's the work of a moment to stir up a massive riot right there in the temple. Now obviously the temple is going to be crowded with Jews just about all day long. But this riot starts very quickly. The charges are listed in verse 28. Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere. That sounds like hyperbole. Really? Paul teaches everyone everywhere? But Luke himself uses similar language. If you go back to chapter 19, Paul, or Luke says this, 19.10, This continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and and Greeks. So Luke is not afraid to say that everyone in the province of Asia heard about Jesus. And these Ephesian or Asian Jews say the same thing. Everyone has heard this guy's anti-Semitic rants and teachings. Is that true? Well, it is somewhat distorted, no doubt. But what is the substance of his teaching according to them? Well, he teaches against the people. That is, the Jewish people. He says, what? Jews are bad. Jews are terrible. Have nothing to do with Jews. Don't listen to Jews. He's anti-Jewish. That's the first charge. Second charge is that he is anti-law. He teaches against the law. Now, what does that mean? As we know, Paul uses phrases like, not under the law, and dead to the law, and both in the first century and today, plenty of people have said, Paul is anti-law. Paul wants us to get away from the law and get into grace, something like that. What did Paul actually teach? Well, Paul was in favor of God's moral law. He was in favor of obedience to God's moral law. What he was opposed to was the idea that the Levitical system of sacrifices, temple worship, priests, etc., was food laws was still necessary for salvation. Paul taught everywhere, you don't need the Levitical system to come into the presence of God. You don't need the Levitical system to wash away your sins. You don't need the Levitical system to become a member of God's family. And Paul does teach that very clearly in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and in all of his letters. He highlights various aspects of that teaching. So, the law is such a big category that to say Paul is against the law has an element of truth in it, but only a slight element of truth. As the people in the temple would have understood that charge, it's false. Paul is not anti-law. These Asian partisans said Paul was against the law Presumably because they regarded the current version of it as practiced in Jerusalem as being the only possible way of following God's law. What we have is it. And if you say anything about it, you're just anti-law. Paul, of course, refuses to accept that. Well, what's the third charge? He teaches against the temple. Now, Paul certainly taught that God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. He says that explicitly in Acts chapter 17. 
God doesn't dwell in man-made temples. But that doesn't mean that Paul is opposed to the temple. Rather, again, Paul has a different understanding, ultimately, of what a temple is for. A temple is a place to meet with God, and Paul teaches throughout his writings, especially in Ephesians, that the people of God are the new temple. We are the place in which God dwells today. It's not that Paul was opposed to the physical building in which he was standing. It's that Paul said, God isn't living in this building anymore. He lives in the gathering of his people. So are the three charges true? Not really. They all have a certain amount of plausibility to them for those who know what Paul actually taught. But no one would think that they represent a nuanced account of Paul's teachings. To cap it off, they said that Paul had put it into practice, that he had brought a Greek into the temple because they had seen him around town with a Greek. Therefore, we'll just add this, he's defiled the temple. Paul, (laughs) all four charges, in other words, are false. Does that matter to the mob? No. It typically doesn't matter to a mob whether what they're doing is good or bad. They are just out for some excitement, out for blood, and the blood they were out for at this moment was Paul's. So all the city was disturbed. They ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and as I mentioned immediately, the doors were shut. Slammed the doors behind Paul as if to say, don't bother coming back in. This institution has spit you out. You are not welcome here. Just as Levitical Judaism had rejected Jesus and spat him out of the city to die on a Roman cross to say, you're not welcome here. In Paul's mind, in Luke's mind, that's more evidence that the Levitical system's days are numbered. The true temple is not this building in Jerusalem. The true temple is the people of God. Paul is thrown out He gets the opportunity to speak to his enemies. So the tribune is surprised that he can speak Greek. He didn't expect him to be educated. He thought he had an Egyptian terrorist on his hands. That's always an interesting day when you're mistaken for an Egyptian terrorist. Paul said, not me, got the wrong guy. I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus. Let me speak. So Paul stands on these stairs, presumably with his guard of Roman soldiers in front of and behind him to protect him, and he starts speaking to the crowd of people on the plaza below. Pretty cool scene. And they quiet down, and they really get quiet when they hear him speaking in Aramaic. He's just played that card. I know your language. I am one of you. Right, in modern terms, he has a Jewish crowd and he starts speaking to them in Yiddish or in Hebrew. And suddenly they get quiet and say, oh, this is somebody who's put in the time to learn how we speak. So what does Paul open with? Well, he opens with his Jewish credentials. He doesn't start with a flat denial. He doesn't say, look, people, I'm not anti-temple, I'm not anti-law, I'm not anti-Jewish. Leave me alone. 
Flat denials don't work. Instead, he tells them his life story as if to say, if you hear my story and understand where I'm coming from, maybe you'll give me a hearing. Maybe you'll understand that I'm not the kind of person who would be anti-Jewish, anti-law, or anti-temple, and I would certainly never defile this institution with the presence of a Gentile. So he starts by presenting his Jewish credentials. I am a Jew. That's what he starts with, right? As if to say, my name is Rabbi Abraham Goldberg. I have a box of matzo bread under one arm and a Torah scroll under the other. You can't get more Jewish than I am. And that's exactly what he said in Philippians. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day. We've got that song for us Americans, I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy, born on the 4th of July, and all these things. Well, Paul is that for Judaism. And he's not afraid to pull that out. And he says, not only am I Jewish, but I am of the strictest party of Judaism. I'm not a liberal. I'm not a bleeding heart ecumenist. I don't want to merge with every other religion out there. I was brought up in the strictest sect of our Father's law. was zealous for God. In fact, Paul seems to regard this as something that should really make a difference in their minds. I used to persecute this faith that I now preach. I'm a convert. Now why is Luke... And that really is why Luke is telling us this whole thing, repeating the story from where he told it before, what, in chapter 9, all about how Paul was converted. Luke is saying, the kingdom is certain... You can trust in the certainty of the kingdom because Paul became a Christian. A Jew like this would not have become a Christian unless there was something really here. So that's how you know that the kingdom is real. Just look at the most famous of the apostles, Saul of Tarsus. There is no chance that this guy would have become a servant of Jesus, without something supernatural pushing him into it. So Paul describes his encounter with Jesus and the whole conversation, how God, how Jesus said to him, go to Damascus, there you will be told everything. Right? There was no one more Jewish than Saul of Tarsus. There was no one more Christian than St. Paul. Paul is not afraid to stand before this hostile Jewish crowd and tell them, I didn't become a Christian because I wanted to. I became a Christian because I had to. I ran into somebody on the road to Damascus and he blinded me with the light, knocked me to the ground and said, why are you persecuting me? Paul was humbled and he was killed and resurrected, as it were, symbolically, blinded, and then given his vision once again. And once he was given his sight, he was able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. An experience, right, that he describes in 2 Corinthians 3. 
Paul then says, I became a Christian on the way to Damascus. And the first thing I did was go to a Jewish home, find hospitality from a Jewish man, a devout man according to the law, well regarded, a good testimony with all the Jews in Damascus. Right? Being a Christian didn't change my attitude toward Jews. I didn't say, oh, I've got a new tribe now. Forget my old people. No. First thing he does, go to the home of a Jewish man who addressed him as Brother Saul. As if to say, I'm twice a brother. I'm a brother to him as a Jewish man. Paul had just addressed them as brothers in verse 1. Men, brothers, and fathers. Ananias addresses Paul as a brother. We are of the same tribe. We are Hebrews. You are my Hebrew brother. You are my Christian brother. And then Ananias says, God has chosen you to see the just one, to hear his voice. You will be his witness. What is Paul's point? He's saying to the crowd, in my mind there is no contradiction between being a Jew and being a Christian. As a Christian, I was discipled and commissioned by a Jew who was also a Christian. It was not difficult at all. It was the obvious logical fulfillment of everything I had believed. And it was the obvious fulfillment for Ananias of everything he believed. This is not crazy, people. This is actually, this actually makes sense. That's the message that Paul is trying to get across. Then I've heard that myself, interestingly enough. Our, when we were in New Hampshire, we bought life insurance, and the guy who came to check our health told us that he was a Jewish man who had become a Christian. Well, why'd you do that, I asked him. Well, it just made sense. It was the obvious fulfillment of Judaism, he told me. Not too difficult. Well, that's exactly what Paul is saying to these people. Don't be mad at me for being a Christian. If you're a good Jew, you will make a good Christian. I did. Ananias did. Ananias says to him something that people have discussed a lot. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. What does he mean? Does baptism actually take away sin? The answer is yes and no. No, the blood of Jesus is the efficient cause of taking away sin. Yes, baptism signifies and seals the taking away of sin. You can call baptism an instrumental cause that Jesus uses to wash away sin. It shows, it depicts, it's a symbol of what's happening. It's a symbol that's useful. The New Testament is full of language like this. And that's what Ananias told Saul. Be baptized. Wash away your sins in this symbolic, exemplary, instrumental cause of salvation that the Lord is pleased to use to take away sins. And Paul did it. And then he fast forwards to say, there's also this other major Jewish incident. You said I'm opposed to my own people. I'm not. You said I'm opposed to the law, I'm not. And here's the kicker, I'm not opposed to the temple either. In fact, he says, there was a time when I had 
an incredible mystical experience right here in this very temple. I was praying in the temple and I fell into a trance. I entered a visionary state. I'm not somebody who's opposed to the temple. As a Christian, I came to the temple and there I had one of the most meaningful, mystical experiences of my life in an encounter with Jesus, the one you say I shouldn't believe in. Well, I met him right here in your temple. He's here. He's in this temple. I met him there. That's what Paul says. And when I met him, he told me, well, we had a little argument. Right? Jesus said, get out of Jerusalem. They won't receive your testimony. And Paul said, in keeping with the theme of the reluctant prophet, yes, they will. Now, Paul is not quite like Moses. He doesn't have the guts to say flat out, please send whom you will send. But he did say, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat them. When Stephen's blood was shed, I was standing by and guarding the clothes. Right? Why does Paul say that? What, is, what does that have to do with anything? The answer is that it's premises in an argument that he's wanting to make. Don't tell me to leave Jerusalem, Lord. I am very well equipped to minister in Jerusalem. This is the place. If anybody can minister here, I can do it. If anybody can be a missionary to the Jewish people, you're looking at him. Because I have the credibility that I used to hate the Christian faith, and then I was converted. I guarded the clothes of Stephen, and now I think Stephen was right. And what does the Lord say? Right, And every, every time a prophet is called, the prophet says, I have some major objections. I think this is a terrible idea. And is there any record of a time when God said, Oh, you're right, prophet. You're off the hook. Have a nice day. Doesn't happen. And it didn't happen here. Then he said to me, Go. I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And what's Paul's final thing? I wanted to evangelize Jerusalem. I wanted to live here. I wanted to be your friendly neighborhood Christian missionary. Jesus told me no. He sent me out. I tried to fight him on it, and I lost. I'm not a Christian because I saw anything wrong with Judaism, nor am I ministering to Gentile dogs because I saw anything wrong with ministering here. You're my people, this is my city. But, my Lord had other plans. So what's Paul's message? I'm not going to the Gentiles because I'm some kind of anti-Semite. I'm going to the Gentiles because I serve Jesus and he told me that I had to. And at this point, the speech is cut off. They listen to him until this word, when he said the word Gentiles, suddenly they're triggered and the riot starts all over again. We can imagine the Roman tribune standing behind Paul, rolling his eyes and praying to Zeus or Jupiter to please station him somewhere else with some more reasonable people who don't riot every two seconds. But they start shaking their clothes violently, throwing dust in the air, yelling and screaming their heads off, doing everything they can to say, we hate what you just told us, 
We don't care how Jewish you are. We hate you and we want to kill you. And we will as soon as we get a chance. As far as the speech goes, it was a rhetorical failure. Paul did not convince anyone among this Jewish crowd. At least no one that we have record of. They waved their clothes. They threw dust in the air. And the commander says, what in darkest pit is going on? I grabbed him. He offered, he spoke to the crowd. And of course, the, the Roman tribune is listening to this speech saying, so what's the problem? I'm not hearing a problem. I'm not hearing a problem. I'm not hearing a problem. Okay, the crowd is hearing a problem. Well, this is interesting. Let's go ahead and beat this guy and see if he'll tell us what the problem is. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. But Paul has made his point. I'm a Jew. I'm not anti-Jewish. I'm pro-Jewish. And that's Luke's point too. Paul is not anti-Jewish. He's pro-Jewish, which means you have to take the kingdom seriously because Paul would have never left Judaism left to his own devices. Right? There are other religions in this world that were started by merely human means. Right? The whole world agrees on that. Buddha was just an Indian prince with a good idea about how to avoid suffering. Mohammed, most people, not Muslims of course, but most people think that Mohammed was just a smart guy who came up with some religious practices that worked very well for Arabian tribes in the desert and spread to neighboring regions. And same goes for various other religions out there. But there's no other figure like Saul of Tarsus, such a committed enemy of the faith who changes his mind and becomes its greatest champion, greatest institution builder, the second founder of Christianity. And that is something we have to reckon with. Despite the opposition of his own people, Paul insisted that he really had been sent out by Jesus as a witness. Jesus really did rule Paul. That's the only explanation. Otherwise, how and why would Saul of Tarsus, Hebrew of the Hebrews, go be apostle to the Gentiles? It doesn't make sense. And thus, we know that the kingdom is certain. That's why Luke spends all this time describing Paul's speech. Not because it's a story we haven't heard, but so we can hear from Paul's own lips, I'm the real deal. I'm a Jew, but there is nothing suspect about my conversion. It's been a theme throughout history since Jewish people who have converted, been baptized, been in church every Sunday, and yet the world around them says, we're not sure you're really Christians. And they themselves say, we're not sure we're really Christians. One can name names like Karl Marx or Gustav Mahler. Men who were ethnically Jewish, baptized, and yet did their conversion stick. But no one says, Saul of Tarsus really Christian. No one reads 1 Corinthians or Romans and comes away saying, I think this guy might still be a Jew. 
And that is Luke's point. You know the kingdom is certain because look at Paul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son really does rule. And that we can be certain of that because of the life, the ministry, the letters, the churches planted by Saul of Tarsus. Father, help us to know the certainty of the kingdom, to believe the certainty of the kingdom, to walk in that certainty by obeying the commands of our King Jesus. Father, we thank you that his kingdom is not anti-Semitic, that he loves his people, that he sent uh, over and over to speak to them. Father, we pray for the veil that lies over the minds of our Jewish friends to be removed, that they might hear from your word and see the glory of the Son of God shining, the light of the glory of the knowledge of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And we ask that that glory would be visible in our own lives too, that we would be transformed by it from one degree of glory to the next. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.